This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 134. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. I uh, forgot to... So, a little behind the, the curtain of this, you know, high-end operation, I forgot to save this track as a new name. So it still says episode 133 as I'm recording, which is why I had to pause. Because I'm like, wait, I, th- I swear we did 133 already. But this is episode 134. And here um, we are, inside the yeah. podcaster studio. Exactly. This yeah. is, <laughs> um, we actually, we've had some audio troubles uh, recently. So our apologies to, to listeners. We are trying to fix it. It, it, it's a bit like, you know, I, I'm, me fixing this is basically like, imagine me trying to fix a jet engine and all I have is a hammer. Um, and I also don't know how, to, how jet engines work. That's basically like my level of skill with audio stuff and also the tools that I have at my disposal. But other so than that, everything is fine. And yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, ho- hopefully we're able to, to, to sort it out this time. Um, usually the issue is that one of us is either too loud or too quiet. And... Um, that, that is generally my fault because I, I'm able to adjust the levels, but it seems very inconsistent at times. So I'm, I genuinely don't know what the reason is because a lot of the times it sounds fine for me. And then it, you know, we, we upload it and like a bunch of people are like, hey, it's a bit quiet or uh, in some spots. Like, okay, well, uh, how do we fix that? But yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll sort it out. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully you're hearing this in pristine surround sound through your headphones or speakers of choice. And... That'll be the sign that we figured out our own audio issues, uh, you know, three and a half years into doing a podcast. So. Yeah, I mean, well, p- part of it, my, yeah. one of my old mics, it just keeps, uh, I, I can't use it anymore, essentially, because it keeps uh, beeping somehow. I don't know if it's like interfer- electrical interference or whatever, mm-hmm. but it, it makes like this very consistent and annoying beeping sound whenever I'm recording, which would, you know, it doesn't make it a very good mic, in, 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 as it turns out. Um so yeah, we're, we're 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 scuffling along. The thing is, we can't even use the pandemic as an excuse because we're recording this like the exact same way we've recorded every single one of our podcasts. Yeah, there's been actually no change in strategy at all. So yeah, it's just us being inept. <laughs> actually, actually, it's just me being inept. Fullman really uh, has nothing to do with this. Let's be honest. I'm not making the situation any better. Also, my mic has an auto adjust thing, which is neat because it tries to use the full uh, scale that's available to it in terms of recording. And if I sound quiet, it'll say, oh, okay, I'll take care of that. And it will turn up its own recording value. That's great. But that has a way of maxing up my volume at every opportunity. And so it's not just that I'm a loud person, even though I do have a podcast where I talk for large sections of an hour and a half every week. It's mostly the recording software and or equipment is too responsive. Yeah. Just kind of funny anyway it's, this it, has it, been... it, you know it's, it's a truism in, in podcaster school the the best podcasters always blame their equipment <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's what we are can you imagine um, a podcasting school good god most useless I, program imaginable all I, right well isn't that just sports journalism now? <laughs> hey yo free dunk all right yeah anyway sorry so that's about three and a half minutes of us um ju- trying to justify our terrible audio which we'll, again we will hopefully fix Yes, I'm hoping um, that that's ironic in the sense that there isn't a problem. So, content-wise, yes. though, we do actually have hockey things that we're going to talk about. Yes, um, and mostly it's 
the Leafs uh, losing this week. Well, they lost two games out of three um, to Vancouver, who we said were as bad a team as Ottawa. And I actually don't think we're going to, you know, backpedal on that. They, they're a very bad team. Mm-hmm. They, they they are, yeah, no, I think they're Ottawa with goaltending. And, and even in these two games, the Leafs did a, a reasonable job at 5-on-5. Five five. I wouldn't say they were, you know, completely dominant uh, at it. Mm-hmm. But... I would say that at 5-on-5, five five, they, they played reasonably well. They got chances, and Thatcher Demko played quite well. Yeah. You know, I think it's worth remembering that the normal range of outcomes for the vast majority of NHL hockey teams is the best teams win maybe two-thirds of their games, and the worst teams win about one-third of their games. Sometimes, in extreme cases, you know, the outliers at either end will be outside that. But the vast majority of them are not that far apart in record, and the result is that even teams that are better, that play better, can lose a couple in regulation to a team that is much worse and is not playing all that well. And especially if there are compounding factors. I think, you know, games like Thursday night, where the Leafs were second game of a back-to-back, had to travel in the interim, obviously kind of tired. And ran into some really hot goaltending from Thatcher Demko. And had Michael Hutchinson playing, who, you know, for all his strong play this year, is still Michael Hutchinson and still, you know, probably not one of the 60 best goaltenders in the world. Yeah, he's an AHL starter. And so all of that comes together, and it's the sort of thing that you get tired of hearing when the team just loses a lot on the whole. But when the team has generally been winning and been successful, that's the kind of thing where you can say, look, shit happens. And so Mm -hmm. I am pretty... Zen, despite losing a couple of games this week to Vancouver. Yeah, I, I, I would say I am too. Um, again, primarily because th- these there was nothing here that made me really that worried about the Leafs going forward, save for one potential issue, injury issue with Austin Matthews, and we'll get to that shortly. Um, but broadly speaking, the Leafs kind of played like the Leafs we expect, and there were... Yeah, they, they, it, was, it wasn't anything overly shocking in that sense. Uh, the one thing I did want to mention, Vancouver was without Elias Pettersson for both of these two games, which you know would have tilted the odds to the Leafs even, even further. Um, so it's a, it's a bit upsetting that we couldn't capitalize on an even weaker foe. But at the same time, you know these things happen. And, and to the point that you and I made you know, kind of repeatedly over the past few weeks, it, it's that you know, things were probably going to go worse for Toronto because there was just a lot more room to go down than to go up. And these games, the Thursday and Saturday game against Vancouver, were exactly the games that Toronto wasn't really losing before, where they, they, you know, played a relatively even game, maybe slightly better um, than their opponent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the result of that previously was just basically wins. You know, that, that, that first set with Calgary was a great example where... The Leafs, you know, kind of played even with them, or maybe even a little bit worse, and the Leafs just happened to walk away with these one-goal wins. Right. Exactly. In this case, it, you know, it went the other way. They weren't one-goal games necessarily, but, you know, close games that just went the other way. And that's, as you mentioned, something that just has, that happens fairly often in hockey. Yeah. I feel like we should almost bask in the glow a little bit here, because normally we're the people saying, okay, the Leafs might be pretty hot right now, but that doesn't mean that everything is perfect. And now we're saying, hey, the Leafs lost a couple in the row, but it doesn't really reflect any underlying change on their part to get like a lot worse. Um, 
Now that said, this only even feels like any decline to anybody because the Leafs were riding so high off their dominating a series sweep against the Edmonton Oilers. Yes, and I, I do want to point out that the Leafs played a very, very strong game on Monday against the Oilers. Um, was it Monday? Yeah, it, would have been no, Wednesday. it, was, when, it was Wednesday. Jesus, yeah. what is time? Also, oh, we played four games this week then. Yeah, so... Okay, so yeah, we, we're two and two, so I, I misspoke earlier, my mistake. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the second game against the Oilers, so the, uh, I would say the Monday game, maybe more specific, the Monday game was not incredibly impressive. I think that was actually a Hutchinson goalie win. Uh, you know, he kind of spurred us to victory there, which is unsurprising, but, you know, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. Um, but the third game I was really, really impressed by. I, I thought, you know, the Leafs did a really good job defensively, especially in the competitive portion of the game. Mm-hmm. Edmonton started out quite hot, and after the first five minutes, the Leafs kind of took over in the first period. They got a goal, which was, you know, not undeserved. And then blew the game open in the second through some really opportunistic offense. And the offense was good, but it was opportunistic more than it was dominant. The defense was really stifling. And that, that's the impressive thing, because for all the flaws of the Edmonton Oilers, and there are many, which we have spent you know, years on this podcast discussing, uh, they remain a very good offensive team. Mm-hmm. And the Leafs, by contrast, have not been a good defensive team. Almost the entire run of this podcast up until the last two months, when it became at least kind of arguable. I mean, maybe you can say also the first appearance of Sheldon Keefe, but this season is the first time where the Leafs have had multiple games, several games, where I've watched them and been like, this is some good defense. Mm -hmm. And they are collectively playing well, and I'm noticing uh, strong defensive plays, especially from TJ Brody, who is a really good stick-on-stick defender. He really is, yeah. A uh, pleasure to have that on the ice. Just watching, you know, opposing plays die the way that ours sometimes seem to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you want to take something positive there, it's uh, that the Leafs had a real legit win against a good and, I think, motivated Edmonton Oilers team that, that you know, was ready to come to play offensively anyway. Because I think the Oilers heard all the chatter about how they were getting embarrassed by the Leafs, and they did not want that to happen again. And yet, the Leafs defended very well, uh, counterattacked, and won pretty comfortably. So, yeah, I, I think that that's a very encouraging game. It doesn't matter more in any larger sense than the losses against Vancouver, although actually the Oilers technically are closer to being our competition, so depriving them of points does matter a little bit more. But, yeah, I think that... Um, the rational perspective on the Leafs is not that they are going to devour the entire world, which was the feeling that seemed to be prevalent on Thursday morning, but it's that they are a good team and that they're showing some growth in areas that have been weaknesses before. So I think that's good. Yeah. And one thing I will say, you know, regarding the Leafs um, kind of defensive ability, it's, you tend to look a lot better defensively when uh, your goaltenders are playing well. Mm, very right, true. and and the least goaltenders have been playing very well. Um, so it, it, the other the other thing is uh, with kind of timing of goals, the Leafs have gotten the first goal so often, and they've been able to kind of play from in front. And we saw this most notably against the Oilers in, in both actually the first and second games. The the shot battles were quite tilted towards the Oilers, um, and this is you know partially why we score just, but. Uh, 
I think even score adjusting and it, score adjusting is based on an average and in small samples there can be even greater pushes or whatnot that occur when the game is essentially out of competitive reach. I think to a large extent that happened in both of the first um, or actually in basically all, all of the Oilers games because the Leafs got out in front so early and then blew it open fairly early in almost all of those games. Mm-hmm. And, so, and it's probably notable in a general sense. Mm-hmm. The Leafs have spent way, way more time leading this season than any other team in the NHL. Yeah, and that's not it's not just a function of the Leafs having a good record and being a good team who who score more than their opponents. It's like even compared to other very good teams. Mm-hmm. Like uh, at 5v5, the Leafs have had the lead for just under 634 minutes. The second place team right now is Tampa Bay. And it's uh, 463 in terms of how long they've spent with the lead this season. Like that's a huge gap. And I do wonder if it affects the stats a little bit more than maybe we're even adjusting for in a score sense, just having that much volume of time, that's speculative on my part, but... Yeah, well, and we saw some of it normalized really against Vancouver, right? Mm. Where the Leafs played, uh, or the Leafs trailed in in both of those games um, quite significantly. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that will happen. Like, again, the Leafs probably aren't as good as the the goal results made them seem against Edmonton. You know, there were as well as they played in, in portions of the games. Um, it's not like Edmonton was completely hapless in terms of generating shots and chances or anything like that. And the Leafs aren't as bad as it, as two games losing to Vancouver makes them seem. So it, it's, yeah. Uh, in conclusion, the Leafs are a land of contrast. <laughs> Outstanding. So let's uh, discuss that one worry that we did talk about. Right. And that's Austin Matthews. Now, this is also, um, this is part of the reason why the wins against Edmonton were so impressive, right? Uh, And and even despite the kind of, the the aforementioned um, play, the aforementioned fact that the Oilers, you know, were not hapless and did actually carry play at some points in the games, even if a lot of it was possibly score effect based and where, you know, the game was competitively out of reach. At least we're without Austin Matthews for two of those three games. Hmm. And he came back for the third Edmonton game and has played two Vancouver games, and he is pointless in that in those time in that time I believe, uh, which in of itself is not necessarily a huge deal, because you know we're educated and we don't care about points, um, but you know we need Austin Matthews to be his best for for the playoffs, and it's always a little worrying when a guy is just kind of sat with what appeared to just be wrist soreness. There was no real more detailed news, was there? Uh, I don't know that I've heard anything more specific other than that it's uh, his top wrist. Right. Yeah. And, you know, wrists are important for hockey and for general life. So, you know, you don't want to to see any potential issue there, especially when Matthews is in the middle of, you know, really an incredibly strong campaign, an MVP-worthy campaign, Mm -hmm. right, in in a lot of years. Um, No, I think the worry really becomes... Is this something that's going to hamper him going forward? Um, and the reason we ask that is because since he came back, Matthews has been playing the bumper on the power play as opposed to his more usual side on either wing. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, first off, playing bumper seems like it's a bit of a waste of Matthews' skills. 
right? Matthews is one of the world's best shooters. Him and David Pasternak are probably, you know, the one-two finishers in the, in the league in some order. Putting him in the bumper, which is not a, you know, it's, it's not an unimportant position, but it's not the position at which Austin Matthews has really demonstrated the most effectiveness. He's demonstrated a ton of effectiveness, basically on either side as a one-time threat or as a catch-and-release shooter. Right. And it, of course, synergizes beautifully with Mitch Marner, who is a wonderful passer. And, you know, playing Matthews uh, on the wing of a 1-3-1 gives him space, right? Because defenders are not going to be centering him or flanking him at, like, at all times because he's far away. But Matthews is good enough to take those shots from, you know, wing positions and turn them into very, very high-value chances because of his shooting and because of the pre-shot movement the Leafs generate. Um, so this is up to some speculation, and I don't know if this is confirmed, but some speculation that the Leafs essentially want to or putting Matthews in the bumper to save his wrist from the stresses of, you know, repeated one-timers and repeated uh, shots. And that would be quite worrying if true. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't know Manny Malhotra, in the course of building what's been a pretty impressive power play, has thrown different looks out there yes. at different times. And so we don't know if this is his usual penchant for variety or if this actually is reflective of we feel like we have to rest Matthews' wrist. And it's just kind of striking because, as you've said, it seems to take him away from the thing that he's the very best at. Right. You you know, for shooting, that's kind of the point of Austin Matthews. It's his number one thing, yeah. Exactly. It's the one thing that he has been, you know, basically one of the elite players in the NHL at as soon as he stepped into the league. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, the worrying thing is, you know, we don't believe the Leafs are an incredibly dumb team. So I, I don't believe the Leafs would be playing Matthews right now if they felt that rest would make everything better and he would, he'd come back full strength and he just needs, you know, two weeks to, to heal the wrist and, and whatever. Um, but the Leafs have already shown they're willing to sit Matthews um, in order to give him the chance to get healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, th- I think they're a forward-thinking enough team that they would not be pushing for the short term at the expense of the long term, especially in a season like this, where even despite those two losses to Vancouver, the Leafs are in a very excellent playoff position. And, I mean, don't look now, but the top four in the North is kind of set. It looks like it might be. I mean, I don't know how much variation we're going to see going forward, because Calgary, I think, and we will talk about their recent coaching change, is still sort of within striking distance, but they've got a tough road to hoe. And I think Ottawa and Vancouver are gone. So, and Calgary lost to Edmonton last night, right? That's a that's a four-point swing, because Edmonton yeah. is kind of, the, at this point, they're the fourth best team by points percentage. Right. And, and so, you know, four-point swings are going to be the order of the day for most of the season. But still, yeah, it's, it's possible that we are just looking at what we're going to have here. Certainly from Toronto's perspective... You should be pretty comfortable. Obviously, anything can happen, and as Leafs fans, we have extensive experience with things going very, very wrong late in seasons, whether it's the last 15 games or the last 15 minutes. But still, they do have to have an eye on the long-term prize here, and they have to treat this like a cup season, which means that if Austin Matthews can be improved with rest, then he's got to get it. That That's kind of how it ought to be in most circumstances anyway, but... Yeah, so, so that's the clouding factor, is surely they know that, and yet here he is. So if he is playing in spite of that, how concerning is it? And we can't really know. We don't have 
yeah, there's too much information that we don't yeah. have, but it's, uh, I guess, something to keep an eye on. Mm-hmm. Watching Matthews over the last three games, I don't think it, he's been at his most effective. Certainly, um, yes, yesterday against Vancouver, I thought the entire first line was kind of bad. Mm. Um, but, you know, he, he, he had seven shots against Edmonton, five shots the first game against Vancouver, three shots last night, even in a, in a rather poor effort. He's still getting chances, Right, and it's hard in a small sample for me to say, "Oh, he doesn't look right," just because maybe the puck hasn't gone in. Like if one of those um, shots just finds the top corner, we're like, "Oh, you know, same old Matthews. He's still doing his thing." Um, and he's been apparently struggling with this wrist issue for a while, and you know, he had 18 goals in his first 18 games or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, it, we don't want to overreact to this and overreact to like three pointless games where in, in large parts, you know, they weren't his best games, but it's not like he looked completely on Matthews like either. Um, so it's just something to kind of that bears watching going forward, I would say. Yeah. And so we're going to hope for the best. And to some extent, we're going to trust the Toronto Maple Leafs medical staff, um, trusting hockey teams to always do the best things regarding their players. Health is not always the soundest proposition, but uh, you know, I think the Leafs as they currently operate, are generally good about this stuff. So at this point, I'm just watching and waiting and trusting the doctors, so to speak. Um, because as we've said over and over again, Matthews is having a heart caliber season and, you know, playing some of the best hockey any Toronto Maple Leaf ever has. So mm-hmm. um, it, it would be unfortunate if that got a little bit derailed, but the first priority has to be his long-term health. So Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so... There's been some other big news in the Canadian division this week. Uh, the Calgary Flames finally bit the bullet and fired Jeff Ward and replaced him with Daryl Sutter. And so that's provoked a decent amount of discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Ward, you may recall, was the interim coach who took over after Bill Peters was dismissed following a scandal involving... Uh, racial slurs that he had said earlier in his career to players and a general climate of uh, psychological abuse, maybe is probably the word for it. It, Mm -hmm. Bill Peters' reputation went down in flames. That was not meant to be a pun. I'm sorry. (laughs) That sounds like I'm trying to make light of it. I promise that just happened. Anyway, he was replaced with Jeff Ward. Ward seemed to right the ship a little bit and they took the interim tag off him you know, gave him a contract. And yet this season has been such a disappointment for Calgary that a couple months in, he's out the door. And they're replacing him with Daryl Sutter, who is well-known to most long-term hockey fans. He had his greatest success coaching the Los Angeles Kings, uh, who won a couple of cups in the course of three seasons. And he's famously kind of Okay, here's the thing with coaches like this, is that I feel like I'm navigating euphemisms because everyone agrees that he is an old-school coach. And then old-school can mean a lot of things. Old-school can mean, you know, simply he has the morals and ethics of someone who is a man in his 60s and came up through traditional hockey culture, who is from Alberta, who is, is steeped in a particular way of doing things that is... Probably less uh, <laughs> sensitive and forgiving 
then uh, maybe more modern coaches, and then there have been allegations from Daniel Carcillo that Sutter is is worse than just a hard ass. That he's right. Like there, there's know. a difference between I guess a coach who happens to be a dick and someone who is, uh, I guess, abusive. And it's very difficult to discuss this topic, I find, as it relates to hockey, because hockey is such an unusual workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it it has such different cultural norms to basically the rest of society. Yes, I I do find, you know, people mm -hmm. sometimes analogize and they're like, well, what if, you know, when I went into the office, X, X, and Y happened? And, you know, I do think it has to be said. It's not an, an office workspace environment. It's different. It's an athletic field uh, in a contact sport. It's based on physicality and adrenaline and all of those things. That said, that doesn't excuse, um, you know, abusive psychological behavior. And we talked about this with Mike Babcock. And, you know, I don't think that his actions were defensible. And now no, we're turning around to Daryl Sutter. Yeah, and, and there, there are similar... Yeah allegations of, of Sutter, and I'd say more numerous uh, accounts of them. Off the top of my head, there was, he reportedly kicked a player on the bench, which, mm-hmm. I mean, regardless of any workplace, physical abuse... You can't is, do that. Yeah, it's very obviously past any lines of any workspace. Mm-hmm. He reportedly told a female staffer to fuck off um, after a loss, because I think she was, like, setting up something for food for the team, and he didn't want the team to eat because only winners deserve food apparently um this is off the top of my head so i apologize if the details are wrong i, I believe the general idea is right uh, or the general i guess recounting of the, of the allegations are correct um he was reportedly locked out of the locker room by his team in la at one point because the team i guess just said fuck this guy yes i do remember they actually barricaded him out with trash cans in front of the doors which is a a striking detail but, but, like, at the least, he seems kind of like a prick. I don't know what else to say. And right. He's been effective or successful, I guess is the, is the way to put it, as an NHL coach. And the Los Angeles Kings were quite impressive in, the, in their dynasty run. But, you know, it, it's a question of what we want to tolerate in our game. And... I am aware that this doesn't seem to have the larger purchase, maybe, that the allegations against Mike Babcock did, because those filtered through and became reported on by other reporters. But also, some of the stories about him were known to reporters and weren't talked about until he was fired. And so in the case of Daryl Sutter, the chatter from the mainstream media seems to be, okay, he's a a tough old guy, he's going to come in, tell them to straighten up and fly right. And I certainly do think that this change reflects Calgary believing that their player's attitude is the problem. Yeah, you don't give a guy like Sutter a three-year contract with his reputation without the idea of, okay, you know, you get a chance to straighten up or we're going to ship you out. Like, it, it's it's a very clear message to the players of he, he has the power here. He is the security. You do not. Yeah, and... While Sutter is enough of a name that, you know, it's not that surprising that he could claim term on the open market, I think it is notable that that kind of sets him up in any power struggle with the players where he says, look, I'm established. They didn't bring me in as a interim guy who might rescue the season 
Um, you know, the way we saw with Ken Hitchcock a couple years ago in Edmonton, where he just played out the year and then was gone. You know, Daryl Sutter, they are saying, is the guy who is going to clean up this version of the Flames, or, I think implicitly, this version of the Flames is not going to continue. There are going to be major trades or major changes. And so, it is unnerving to think, how exactly is he being expected to go and navigate this dressing room? And it's hard to escape the conclusion that he certainly wasn't brought in because they think that he's changed and become Mr. Nice Guy who's going to give everyone a hug. And the question is, is he going to be at all mitigating the way that he used to behave? And again, these allegations, I don't know that are all fully confirmed, but they're all credible and some of them are well known. So... Yeah, it is uh, It is quite a change, for sure. And I don't think you can escape the conclusion that it was a straighten up and fly right, or, you know, you're probably going to get turfed sort of move by the Flames. It yeah. sounds like they're mad at their own players. It, it really <laughs> does. And at, you alluded to this, the discussion of this in the media has, has not really been centered around this possibly abusive coach getting another high-profile job. It, it, it's kind of been, okay, you know, so Daryl Sauter's getting hired, makes sense. It's like, okay, wait, are we just moving on? Yeah, I, I have to admit, and this is part of why I'm, you can tell that I'm kind of tentative in wanting to discuss this with the seriousness that this warrants, and yet at the same time, it's weird to me that everyone just seems to be kind of going with this, whereas when Mike Babcock, um, you know, resurfaced and again, what would have been his redemption tour. Uh, there was an immediate and very strong backlash centered around the Toronto fan base for sure, who has yeah, which, understandably lost all patience with him. But. Yeah, and I think that's how it should be to an extent. Like, it, it's, you know, you get into very muddy waters of redemption and forgiveness and, what, you know, what people can do to atone for prior uh, misbehavior or prior, like, offenses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while you don't want people to, I guess, be demonized for life for mistakes that they made, because at least I, I personally feel that people can grow and can learn and can improve, you want them to, you know, demonstrate that. And when people are placed in a position of power or authority without having necessarily done that reckoning, um, it's worth bringing up their, their prior transgressions as, as a thing to point out. It's like, hey, why why is this person still being given these roles and these opportunities and these this position of you know extreme power and influence over people if you know they haven't properly atoned for the the behaviors? If that's the, you know the culture that we're trying to get rid of in in hockey, why is this happening? It's worth pointing that out. I think at times it's with Babcock in particular. Um, it leads to this situation where people um, say, you know, he's a dick, but he also was a terrible coach, which I think is kind of demonstrably false based on his career. He, he's a dick who happened to be a rather good coach, which is what made his dickishness both tolerated by teams and players to some extent and accepted. Yeah, you can say that the game perhaps evolved past him in some ways. And you can certainly say that he did not get Toronto over the hump to the extent mm -hmm. that we hope. And even if 
that was too big a lift. The fact is that's his job. And if he can't do it, eventually he's going to get fired anyway. But yeah, I think that uh, the difficult thing with guys like this is that it would be very easy if they were totally unredeemed, terrible coaches in terms of their actual quality at making the team win, because then it would just be very easy to dismiss them. Daryl Sutter has been a very successful coach. He coached teams that had a very uh, imposing physical identity that were very successful, um, that were uh, among the most dominant teams of the era from 2012 to 2015 or so. And that's kind of partly why they've brought him in. And that's also why people sort of shrug and say, well, that's what he does. He does what it takes to win. And, you know, Scotty Bowman, by all accounts, who was uh, considered the greatest coach of all time, when he was coaching the Dynasty Habs teams in the 70s, he did all sorts of shit uh, that I would hope would not fly, but that certainly is not uh, kind or supportive or anything like that. You know, he, he treated players very badly. The, the old saying about him was that the players hated him 364 days a year, and then on the last day they got their rings. Um, that is still the predominant attitude in hockey. And when I think a, a front office is frustrated with its own personnel, the way that Calgary is because of how disappointing the season has been, I think sometimes you see an outcome like this where they, they still go back to the well on one of those old school, to use the phrase, coaches. Yeah, and it feels punitive, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's... If, if there were not such credible allegations of abuse would, I think, be understandable. If, you know, you want to, ta- uh, maybe people, maybe that those players need a, a hard-nosed taskmaster of a coach. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, certainly what no one needs is someone who has been, you know, say, for example, physically abusive. Yeah. Like, it's right? one there, thing to say, okay, a everyone's very... got to be here. Everyone's yeah. got to do their, give 110% in practice, and we're going to do drills and bag skates or what have you. But uh, that that's on the other side of the line compared to some of the stuff that has been said about Daryl Sutter. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we would be remiss to not discuss this and point out, you know, some, some hypocrisy there with how, um, with, I guess, the treatment of, of, of certain players, or, mm-hmm. or certain coaches. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of the other things that we, uh, we wanted to discuss. Um. So, yeah, uh, a couple of other things happened this week. One of them was that Mark Shifley was asked about analytics, and I believe the word he used was hogwash. Which is delightfully 1920s of him. I love it. I just hope that everyone starts talking like, you know, reporters well, from 1928. Mark, Mark Shifley is one of those guys who like, doesn't swear, right? Like, I, I'm, I, is he? I, I feel like I've heard something like that about him, where, or at least maybe fans feel he doesn't swear. So, like, I, I've, I've seen, you know clips of him talking on the ice where fans will caption it's like where he's frustrated he, he fans will caption saying gosh darn it why isn't it you know it's like kind of absurdly clean uh language oh, so so maybe this is maybe some support for that theory i don't know how confirmed it is oh well you know good for him but uh yeah so he was asked about the value of analytics and as we've remarked on here before the jets as a team look kind of rough analytically so I'm not sure if that played any role in maybe making him 
less enamored of an analytics than he would have been anyway. But in general, no, no one is more dismissive of hockey analytics than a team with bad, bad stats and a good goalie. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's very understandable from a human perspective, if nothing else. I don't want to hear numbers that tell me I'm bad. I want to hear numbers that tell me I'm awesome. And a certain amount of self-belief is necessary to operate at the highest level of a professional sport. So... I'm not surprised that they don't have a lot of time for those kind of things. But the thing that I wanted to remark on just briefly is that he doesn't have to know or like or believe in analytics to be good at what he does. You know, it really does not bear on him that closely. And Pierre-Luc Dubois was asked about this, and he had a very uh, less dismissive, very thoughtful answer. But he basically said, you know, it's one thing to say okay, you've got to get a better Corsi. And then he says, well, that doesn't really translate into actionable intelligence for me. Uh, in terms of what he said was, you know, it's about, did I get a stick in the lane or was my stick two feet to the side? Or something like that. They're approaching it from a perspective of, what do I have to do to win this next shift? To win this next period, this next hockey game? And it's not very useful to go to a player and say, Hey, get your Corsi up. And I know that the better analysts uh, have always said, look, that's not how we would ever approach players. Mm -hmm. um, nor should they. But it feels like we go through this cycle over and over again, and it's at the point where I, I thought it was worth just briefly commenting on. Because a lot of times, you know, players get asked, and it makes good copy when they say something like hogwash, which is very fun for all involved. It but, leads to a tweet with like a lot of engagement and people being like, you know, you, you get fans who hate analytics being like, see, the players know this is useless. And you get fans who care for analytics being like, uh, you know, this player's a dumbass or whatever. Yeah, and, and just, I don't think yeah. either of those are fair. Right, right. Yeah. It, it, as you said, it's not relevant to, to Shifley um, insofar as it doesn't, like, uh, unless it's related to what he can change about his play. And, you know, tons of performance analysts like Justin Bourne and like Jack Han have said, you know, that players want something that is actionable in a, in a way that, you know, they can modify or they can, you know, think about how, what they need to do to exert the desired change on, on the score sheet or, you know, through the next shift or through the next game or whatever. And we've had this discussion before, like even saying, okay, yeah, I need to be actionable. Like we've had this particular discussion before. We're not adding anything new to this. This entire line of questioning doesn't actually go anywhere. It doesn't give us any new insight. So I... It's just, it, I don't see why we keep asking, why, or not why we, but why, you know, this becomes a hot button topic five times a year. A player says, yeah, I don't really look at analytics. It's like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It, there's no issue with this at all. There shouldn't be. Yeah. I just, I mean, analogies between sports and war are always very strained. And so I'm going to make one anyway with that knowledge in sort of an old timey 1800s fashion. But like, when you're a general, maybe you have to know whether it's appropriate to try a siege here or something like that. When you're a soldier, you have to know how to dig a trench. And that isn't really a necessary crossover between two fields of knowledge. The things that Mark Scheifele has to do, not to underwrite him in any way, are to figure out the best individual level tactics uh, in the coach's system that are going to make him as effective as he can be and to read each play on the ice. And over the longer term if his analytic numbers are really bad and his results are not great, then you can see how that would 
lead his coach to say, okay, maybe we got to try something different here. But from his perspective, he really has to focus on the micro level and on other things like training and being in the best possible shape. He doesn't need to think Corsi is worth a damn or anything else. Yep, pretty so, much. Yep. Uh, okay, so yeah, we're breezing through a little bit of a grab bag of topics here. Um, this is another brief little aside that we just mentioned. Uh, Zach Bogosian's been better than we thought he would be. How about that? Yeah, I mean... Somewhat. <laughs> well, yeah, it's... He, he, in general, I think this goes alongside the the theory that, you know, Katya has talked about many times, and, you know, it's not unique to, to her. Other people discuss it, where it's like, look, the third-pairing defenseman and the fourth-line forwards are generally not that impactful one way or the other. Yes. Um, it's a It's a problem when you dedicate resources to those players and it, it hurts uh, that are bad and it hurts on the margins. You know, if, if you play Jack Johnson, for example, it's like, okay, yeah, that that's not making your team better. It will probably not sink you unless there are other significant issues with the team. Mm-hmm. And Bogosian has been fine enough in his role. I, I, you know, do I think he's the best possible player for that role? No, probably not. Am I incredibly fussed about it? Also, no. Um, it is kind of weird that we brought up Timothy Loegren uh, and have just not played him so far. Yeah, and Brought I him don't up to the taxi know what squad, the... I should say. Yeah, like the obvious time to play him would have been to give Bogosian a rest on a back to back. Yeah, no, the thing is, yet... they have they have to waive someone, right? Because um, they have to bring him off the taxi squad for for someone else. Uh, right, but they do have certain players who are waiver exempt. Uh, right, Nico Letnin, I believe, is there. Oh no, we're now we're running six, so there's a problem right there. Um, so yeah, it, it's a bit more open to question there, how we're going to get him in. They probably brought him, brought him up for a reason. I would we think so saying. because, you know, the, the whole point of having Marmar, Martin Marinson, for example, on the taxi squad was like, okay, look, he can step in and do a job if, if needed. And we don't have to worry about his development. Like if he's not playing games, it's whatever. Yeah. Timothy right. Lilligren is supposed to be good. So the, the other thing that we were wondering is, is he being brought up and or showcased for a trade? As yep. a potential piece that might be included. and But again, you would still want him to appear in yeah. order to do that effectively. Yeah, because, I mean, the taxi squad is effectively the AHL, but you're not playing. Yeah. And so we see names like Nick Patan or Nico Letnin and Alexander Barabanov, who kind of float up and down. And obviously the latter two are waiver exempt, which is valuable. But it's not generally where you want to be putting a 21-year-old. And right. so... Yeah, that's been kind of a uh, a confusing thing there because I really do, or at least did, expect them to play him more. And maybe yeah. they will. I mean, again, in line with the Leafs having a playoff spot, you know, fairly well secured at this point, and <laughs> because third pairing defensemen are probably not that impactful, it would make sense to get a look at Lilligren. Yes. Right now, granted. Taking Doigren out for Bogosian means someone else needs to play PK minutes, and I think this is one of those things that coaches maybe center centralize around too much because PKs, um, you know, that's like four minutes of a game. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, thinking about it again, uh, for a third pairing defenseman, that's a pretty significant chunk of their overall contribution and time on ice. So maybe maybe that's the reason it hasn't gone through yet. Is that Keith wants Bogosian for the penalty kill, and he doesn't necessarily trust anyone besides, you know, Bogosian, Muzzin, and, and Brody for that. 
and yeah, I guess Hall probably Hall. plays a little yeah. bit uh, on the PK too. So, yeah, I, I, I suppose that's it. But um, it seems like a little bit of inconsistency. I, I, I don't see what the benefit of having Noe Grant up on the taxi squad is if he is not playing, both to him and to the team. Yeah, and so maybe he's just up there to be in the environment, to so learn the vibes. NHL. Yeah, just by osmosis. No but... playing, just vibes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I can't imagine that that's something that they intend to sustain for an exceptionally long period. So if he doesn't um, get into game action at some point, I would expect him to go back to the AHL, where he was playing, by all accounts, very, very well this year. Had a strong right. start to the season. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, uh, my my point about Zach Bogosian was just, I, I think he's been better than maybe I thought he was going to be. Now, that said, unlike previous defensemen who we have been mad at, like at times Cody Ceci or Tyson Berry or Roman Polak or whoever else, he's never had the least sign of being played above the third pair, which is partly <laughs> why, one, he's more effective, and two, it's easier to not get fussed about him because there's no real threat that he's going to displace someone we really care about from the top four. Right. But it's been encouraging. Yeah, and the Leafs' top four is now as settled as it's been, you know, in years. Yeah. Um, which adds additional comfort and stability, and also Bogosian hasn't really been getting outscored. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's always nice, too. You know, you just you subconsciously, even even as you try and divorce it from analyzing, as we, we tend to do, because, you know, goals for and against can be quite unrelated to a player's skill, especially a defenseman. Who, who often don't exert a lot of control over how well their forwards finish or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, even trying to take account of that, when you see a guy constantly like dejectedly go skating back to his bench, looking up at the jumbotron as the other team gets a goal, it that impacts your view of them. Yes, it is very hard for it not to. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, just I remember on our pod in the off season when we surveyed all of these moves, well, we were a bit okay. On that yeah, one, I, I think what we, we came never thought it was a big deal. Like, but. Yeah, we, we said if he never plays above the third pair, it's not a big issue. Yeah, and it appears to be working out that way, which is great. Right. And so, yeah. Um, okay, uh, are we ready for the, the Marvel thing, or is there anything else you want to? Uh, I guess we have, one, we have yeah. one kind of sort of bad take. Not, not sort of bad take, it's a bad take, but it's just it's, <laughs> we've discussed this so much. So, yeah. um, so yesterday, uh, Adam Proto, who I, I think used to write for like NHL.com or maybe like the yeah. Maple Leafs themselves or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, uh, I, I believe it was NHL.com, but for the Leafs. Oh, okay. As a beat. But I could be, there's a lot of crossover between those ideas. So Yeah. yeah. Um, so he tweeted, uh, you know, after, after the game last night, I wonder when Kyle Dupes is going to have to revisit his promise to never trade William Nienander. Not saying he absolutely has to, but the never part of it needs to be taken off the table. So there's just, again, I know we beat this, you know, we go to this well every so often. Mm-hmm. Just First off, can we stop trying to trade William Nylander? Just, yeah. we'll, we'll start there. Don't do it. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> That's the end. The, the second thing is, what is he asking for? Is he asking for Dubis to, like, tell William Nylander, hey, I might trade you, right? Uh, or is he asking Dubis to, like, say publicly, yeah, we might trade William Nylander, because neither of those seem like they make a lot of sense to me. The, for the first, for all we know, that might have happened already, right? How would we know? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, is that, like, he's implying that Dubas has been sticking rigorously to the commitment that he supposedly made to never trade William Nylander. And, 
we also don't even know that Dubas ever really made that commitment that extended beyond that year. Like, from what I remember, that that idea was Dubas essentially assuring Nylander, look, we're not signing you to trade you, we're signing you because we want you. I don't believe Dubas said, and if he did, he's a dumbass, we are never ever trading you because that's just a dumb thing to tell a player. Yeah, and I think Nylander has to have some awareness of this. But further to that... In the last year of this contract, which is the first year in which Nylander would be eligible for a no-trade or a no-move, he has a 10-team no-trade list. He doesn't have a full no-move clause. And so you don't negotiate something like that into a contract, which clearly means we can trade you to one of 22 teams at the time it'll be, under the assumption that it'll never happen. Like, I think that there was some awareness that this was a short-term thing, and Dubas was expressing his desire to have Nylander on the team long-term, which is natural and true and justified because he's a good player. It really just feels like there's just this desire to turf him. And I would almost respect it more if they were just like, okay, what for? Like, what are you making this trade for? Yeah, like we, don't, we no longer need a second pairing defenseman. No. <laughs> and I mean, like, if you're getting a note out about it top, pair guy back for some reason, I guess. But one, I don't think you are. And two, the need now for the Leafs is probably someone who's going to play second line wing. What does William The Leafs need secondary scoring. (laughs) Yeah. Like literally the thing that he already is there for is probably the thing that we would most want to add. So most Nylander trade discourse has been done pretty much always, but it's especially weird now. Where it's like, one, there was no need to raise this because it's not really a thing. Like, I do not think Kyle Dubas tied his own hands in that manner, you know, multiple years into the contract. And two, there's no hockey reason to do it other than he makes me mad and we've had enough of that. And I'll I'll give Adam Berteau more, more credit than that. I don't think he just thinks they have to deal Nylander because he's blonde. But like... It's just weird at this point. He's obviously worth his salary. He's good at the thing that we need to be good at. We do not have uh, a clear need at this point to reallocate money from forward to defense. So, yeah, like this was just so divorced from any kind of realistic context. It was very weird. Yeah, I I, I, I just don't get it. And he he clarified in like a follow-up tweet, uh, because Jeff Bayette was kind of just like, this seems really dumb, which is true, <laughs> in fairness to Jeff. Uh, it's, a, yeah. it's a valid point. You know, he was, I mean, Jeff was nicer about it than that, but that, I think that was like the crux of what he was saying. It's like, this is, a, this is dumb. <laughs> um, and he said that, you know, Jeff said that, you know, has been good the past few weeks. This seems quite reactionary. Proto is like, yeah, the past couple of weeks, sure, the entire season hasn't been ideal. Not saying you have to move him, but the idea that he's on a level with Matthews, who really is untouchable, puts him on a level I don't think he's earned. The- Okay, again. <laughs> Who was saying this? Yeah. Th- this oh. is like the the argue, the Twitter arguing with no one. Like, you know, I was told Steph Curry wasn't a good shooter tweet, basically. Yeah. It's like, no, it's, it's me. I'm the person who thinks that Nylander and Matthews are equally good. Yeah. I, I'm the guy who holds that opinion. I'm a real person, and I exist. Like, come on, man. <laughs> it's preposterous. It's, it's, so, it's so frustrating, right? And the entire season hasn't been ideal. In, in what sense? He, Nylander has, like... A ridiculous. We criticized Nylander to start the year, to be honest, because yeah. he 
was uh, the second line with Tavares wasn't playing that well with kind of the rotating host of people that they had, especially offensively. They were not really getting to the front of the net. Tavares wasn't really shooting as much as he, he used to. He and Niedander weren't really generating goals, even though, you know, defensively they were actually playing well and they've always been outscoring their opposition. But it didn't seem like it was uh, clicking at a high level, especially against other good teams or other good 5-on-5 teams like Montreal. Um, recently, that line has been playing fairly well, I think, with Alex Kerfoot there. Yeah, I think that they found a combination that works, and part of the reason that it's sort of encouraging to be able to keep maybe the Hyman, Engvall, Mikhaev line together longer term is that the second line seems to work well too. And, yeah. And so there's a, a nice resting state there. Yeah. So like, so I don't but, know. <laughs> yeah. If, if we're saying okay, it hasn't been ideal. Well, it hasn't been ideal for everyone except maybe Austin Matthews. Like cause, because players don't play their best for you know every single game of a season. This is how it works. People go through slumps. There's times where things aren't working. Like, mm-hmm. what's the standard we're applying here? Yeah. It, it, it's nuts. And one thing I'll say is, like, if Nylander had the game that Mitch Marner had yesterday, we would be hearing about it for a week. And I'm not saying we should be hearing about it for a week with Mitch Marner. That would be dumb, too, because Marner is a very, very good player who happened to have a shitty game. Mm-hmm. It happens. It's not a big deal. Right, it yeah. shouldn't be every bad game should not be a referendum on someone's ability as a player. Yeah, and you know I know that people are going to click on Nylander related tweets and media uh, because there is such a baked in part of the fan base that seems to want rid of him, and then there is a fan base acting in reaction to that who says, "Can you please fucking stop it?" And you know uh, I think that we've been clear. Sometimes it is worth criticizing William Nylander. I think. You know, sometimes he needs uh, some motivation from his coach um, in the sense of, you know, Sheldon Keefe benched him for a few minutes uh, a few games back, and that's that's kind of how it goes. But, like, the people who say it's a dumb idea to trade William Nylander, those people are right. Like, I want to be clear, it's not, you know, between two factions here, which is how I've sometimes seen it presented where it's like there's one group that's crazily against him and one group that's crazily for him. You know, the group that's for him is about right. Yeah. You know, even if they're a little reluctant to criticize him sometimes, they have like 85% of the argument on their side. Yeah, they're, so... they're not they're not equivalences. Like, e- yeah. even if we... There are circumstances where, like, you know, you criticize Nienander, I think, justifiably, and people get annoyed and go like, oh, what about X guy? It's like, okay, well, yeah, but we can also criticize Nienander. But mm-hmm. those people are... A, as you said, a hell of a lot closer to being correct than the um, than the opposition. Yeah, and so it was was just like a, a weird tweet on, on Mr. Proto's part uh, because it came out of nowhere. It made no sense, and then he converted it into an argument that no one is making. Yeah, <laughs> so. Neander has been has been fine this year. Even even when we were criticizing Tavares and Neander for for struggling, it was through the lens of you know what we need them to be, which is really a first line that's playing on the second line. Yeah. Right? And, you know, you know. It's, it's, we were applying a very, very high standard to them of, you know, is this, are they where they need to be to be good enough for the Leafs to contend? And over the course of, I guess, you know, since they've gotten Kerfoot over the past few games, um, they've played, I think, better. They look more cohesive. And maybe that's just me being fooled by the puck going in more. But It helps, but... Yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, it, it's worked well with, with Kerfoot there, especially offensively. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that y- you can tell that this just kind of annoyed us because we're thinking, 
there has to be some rationality where we don't have to talk about William Nylander all the goddamn time as a trade candidate. And the fact that there is less reason to trade him right now than there probably has been in years, when I also would have thought it was dumb, it just makes it very frustrating. <laughs> so, because we have a podcast, we get to complain about this stuff uh, on air. Um, so, one uh, sort of parting thing that is a little bit off topic, we solicited potential show topics on Twitter this week, and we got a lot of responses, and I want to say thank you to everyone who submitted them. We are not neglecting them by any means. We are putting them into a running Google Doc and all this sort of stuff and preparing notes, and we will use certainly some of them in coming weeks and months as we try and fit that content into uh, the overall ebb and flow of the season. And so we got a lot of uh, different types of questions. Most of them were about the Leafs and hockey, but a couple of them were not. And one of them was just about, like, Marvel movies, and this is from Mahesh, who I know on Twitter is a good guy. But I found that I am often at odds with people I otherwise like and admire and listen to on Twitter about the Marvel movies, and I thought, well, this is as good a chance as I'm ever going to have to complain about it, because we've been explicitly <laughs> asked. So there was a scene in the show WandaVision, which is a Marvel property, and someone made a quote in, in that scene that says, you know, what is grief if not love persevering? And a tweet went viral that said, uh, every screenwriter is murmuring a reverent fuck under their, their breath at how good this line is, sort of thing. And then a bunch of people made fun of that person. And there was a whole little boomlet of more Marvel discourse, people talking about these comic book movies and the franchises. And I get annoyed at that, and here's the thing. If you like Marvel and say, hey, these are fun movies to me. They're good. I enjoy them. They're well-made for what they are. They're cool, kind of snappy, there are a few lines of fun dialogue, there are some good action scenes. I like it. It makes me happy. That's cool. That's valid, and that's beyond any criticism. If you're saying, hey, that line kind of meant something to me. It was a, a good line. It really made an impression on me. That's also cool. Where I get frustrated with the whole Marvel thing is when people put forward elements of it and say, hey, this is really good high art or movies in a sophisticated way. This is like really good artistically and it's brilliant. And then people criticize them and they say, hey man, I just like it. You kind of can't have it both ways where you're saying this is stuff that really bears devoted criticism or something. But anytime it gets any negative criticism, it's like, hey man, come on, it's a comic book movie. What are you complaining about? And this may seem like a weirdly specific thing, but believe it or not, one of the times I've made people the most mad online was me just saying, gosh, it's kind of too bad that everything is a superhero movie now. And I do kind of, I, I guess, resent a little bit that it seems like so much of media has been eaten up by the Marvel franchise and stuff like that. And then people still view them as this underdog that's underappreciated that has to be talked up and treated as more than it is. When, you know, these are two-and-a-half-star popcorn movies. Black Panther, maybe three stars. That was a good one. But, I, so, actually, my yeah. unpopular opinion about um, Marvel movies is that Black Panther was a 
pretty average movie that was a lot more important for what it meant um, kind of off screen than on screen in terms of having, you know, first of all, the, 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 sco- the story being about kind of Afrofuturism is something that mm-hmm. hasn't really been done. And that, that's genuinely innovative and very cool, especially because of, clon- because of colonialism kind of essentially fucking up the continent of Africa just throughout history, mm-hmm. right? And exploiting the resources and the people there. Um, so it was very important for that, for having a very, you know, predominantly, almost entirely um, black cast, black director, and still making a shit ton of money and still being a, a good, solid movie. I think yeah. that's what it was most important for. I don't think it was an amazing movie. I think it was a fine Marvel movie. Yeah. Well, but I it showed that, show is... that, you know, you can make a fine Marvel movie about black people in case people needed to be convinced about that. And, it, yeah. and you know, it's significant for that reason. So I'm not taking away from its significance and its importance, and it, it's a good movie. I don't think it's an amazing movie. I mean, that's my attitude towards Mar- most Marvel movies. I will say I was impressed by a couple things again. One is the the style in that movie was really pronounced. Yes. For futurism you talked about, it looked gorgeous. And yeah, it was and very there, cool. And there, was some, there was a really, really good shot. Um, one, of, one of my favorite shots, actually, in all of Marvel movies was um, kind of the inverted um, pan on Killmonger when he, ascent, when he takes the throne, basically. We're showing him kind of going from right side up to upside down or the reverse or something like that, mm. which I thought was just a really, really visually attractive shot. Yeah, and I think the other thing that I would say that really, I thought, elevated that movie above most of the run of them was Michael B. Jordan. Oh, yeah, he was um, phenomenal. He was a very compelling villain. And, you know, they were willing to say, like, hey, this guy has a point. Yes. You know, even if he's the bad guy, he has some things, which is always, it's always more interesting in every media ever if you're going to have a villain, if they are comprehensible. Yes, and, and I, I guess relatable. one of the things I disliked about the movie, and part of what made it kind of, you know, I want, mediocre is probably viewed too harshly, but I think where they left some something on the table was kind of a third act where it just became a hero versus the evil version of himself with the hero winning and killing the bad guy. Yeah. And they kind of no longer having to reckon with the very valid points that Killmonger brought up. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that that kind of gets into the broader thing about Marvel movies, which is, you know, they have a formula. You can set your watch by the beats in most of these. They have funny lines at certain points. They have a a period of self-doubt for the hero, they have a resolving action sequence, all that sort of thing. And there are variations on this, but they kind of stick to the, the plan. Yeah, and, you know... And that's that's fine. Yeah, they're well-acted, well-produced. There's a ton of money behind them, so they generally look good. Uh, yeah. the, ironically, the, the final fight scene in Black Panther is probably one of the worst CGI, feel, um, you know, se- sequences in the MCU. But, mm. yeah, it's... They have a formula, and it works well, and it produces good quality stuff. But it's not necessarily challenging the form. Yeah. It's not, as, as you say, the, the contradiction comes where people say, you know, Marvel movies are, are genuinely high quality art and worthy of, you know, admiration on their artistic merits. Well, if they're worthy of admiration on their artist, artistic merits, they're also worthy of criticism on their artistic merits. And that yeah. criticism is valid. Right. And it's, it's similar to, th- this reminds me kind of of how some, I guess, capital G gamers talk about video games or like you know video games are an art form which i believe they are all media is is an art all media is an art form in some sense and Mm -hmm. are worthy of kind of criticism and discussion and admiration right and then people pointed out hey you know a lot of video games have kind of are viewed through this very uh masculine gaze right through this you know very stereotypically masculine gaze which reflects kind of broader patriarchal views and then it was like you know 
what it came down to is gamers saying, wait, no, not like that. That's not how we meant they should be criticized or reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it, it, it's, it's inherently, it, you can't take one without the other, right? which I think is your point. I, I see this as someone who's a pretty big fan of the MCU. I, I'd say, you know, to your point about it kind of dominating media and perhaps cannibalizing other more unique, um, more unique properties, it, it, it's, I would say the MCU has been a significant portion of the movies that I've watched over the past 10 years because I'm not much of a moviegoer generally. But, uh, and that, that can be viewed as a problem. But, you know, in of itself, it, it, it's fine to point out the, the issues with this. And I would also say that, you know, the MCU is literally the most popular movie franchise in world history. Mm-hmm. It's not a hipster thing to like it. Yeah, I think that there's this weird inherited underdog mentality that has served Marvel very well from the fact that most of the very first wave of fans of these characters read comic books, which is viewed as niche. But the movies themselves are huge. Like, how many people can identify Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man or Chris Evans in Captain America worldwide? It's probably, like, a decent chunk of the population of the entire Earth. And more than most people. You know, they're... They're a huge business. They're a big deal. And it is a little bit weird to me sometimes. When people sort of still bring that that underdog mentality to Disney as a corporation. Now, to be clear, I'm not ragging on anyone for cheering for a huge business because see podcast. Right. But it, it there's this weird thing where people feel compelled to kind of go to bat for it as really good high art or anything. And for the most part, I just don't think so. I'm not even like a film snob really or anything like that. Like I like a lot of dumb shit like John Wick. I enjoyed the hell out of that movie and the sequels and stuff like that. But you know, it's Keanu Reeves killing dudes in great style with a nice soundtrack, but that's all there is to it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I don't put that forward as being, hey, here's the nominee for Best Picture. I'm like, that movie was cool as shit. So I guess that um, it's just that dichotomy where people kind of want to have it two ways, where it, it can be evaluated as being this great, cool artistic phenomenon. And then at the same time, if the criticism is negative, suddenly it's, hey, it's a comic book movie. Yeah, it is a comic book movie. That's fine. Just let's leave it at that level. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's fair. Um, as it relates to to Wandavision, I'm going to say this without spoilers, so you don't have to worry if you've listened to it. Um, one of the things that's annoyed me about the discourse of of Wandavision specifically is that people, a lot of people who have I think valid complaints about the direction the show took and how it resolved some plot lines, are dismissed as like, oh, you just are unhappy that X, Y, or Z did or did not happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but this this is not necessarily unique to Marvel movies. It's it's you know media criticism in general. Um, we're or at least engaging with criticism in in good faith and actually you know listening to the criticisms people have. I think it's magnified with Marvel movies because there is, as you said, this very um, cult like culture about with respect to fans of it, um, who often you know defend it as if it is this you know as if it shouldn't be held to the standards of a billion-dollar, you know, movie or production, you know, franchise tentpole figure in, in the current media landscape 
who has essentially unlimited funds and creative direction which they can go right like there, there, there's there's no resource limitation here it can very fairly be criticized without you know without really being uh unfair to the the constraints that these people have because there are very few at this point yeah you, you know that they're so well bankrolled and you know i i'm also a little biased in this by the fact that martin scorsese who's a director that you know i i would put him up there with maybe as the best director of all time. I'm not, you know, any kind of knowledgeable film person, but I think his best stuff compares to anybody. But, you know, he said, hey, everything has been commodified into pure content. Maybe that's having an overall impact on the artistic path of movies. And a ton of Marvel people were like, name one scene in any Scorsese film that compares to the, the last scene in Avengers Endgame. And I have to admit, I was a little bit like, you got to grow up a little bit, man. Like it's, that's, that's kind of pushing it when it's just like, here are all the superheroes coming out of the portals. And it's like, it's cool to enjoy that though. It's great. But you know, I don't think that it's a real answer to his criticism of maybe turning everything into what seems like a Toys R Us product to just say, um, look how cool it was when all the superheroes came out. So yeah, I guess... This is 100% the Fuleman has gotten annoyed online segment of the podcast, which I guess is what we do a lot, but I just felt like I wanted to express it because, you know, we did get asked about Marvel movies, and I think Mahesh was kind of annoyed at me because I was like, I don't even think they're that great. So, Mahesh, if you have endured this long, thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So I think that's a that's a good way to end it off. Um, if If this whole, if hockey, you know, goes badly which by which we mean if, if the Leafs like don't make the playoffs or, or lose in the first round or something stupid like that again we'll just turn this into a MCU criticism podcast yeah it's true um, we're, we're just gonna watch them together and all have takes about like I don't know Thor Ragnarok and shit like that very yeah. good oh yeah Thor Ragnarok was, was, was a great movie the music cue when he jumps out to immigrant song is as pure a moment as you're ever gonna get I will yeah. acknowledge that rocks. That no, shit is cool. Absolutely. And <laughs> I guess to, to the point, one thing the Marvel movies do very well is hire, and this is the point you made to me when we were chatting about this in preparation, they hire very talented actors and filmmakers and you know, pe people behind the scenes who are able to take these you know, otherwise pretty rote story beats and elevate them into something that's visually and emotionally interesting. And I think yeah. Taika Waititi is you know, maybe one of the better examples of that with Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, I, I do think that... Um... If there's going to be a defense of them to be made, you know, that they are this huge big business. They do hire good people. And the amount of talent that has passed through the MCU that is really good by any measure, uh, you know, artistic, commercial appeal, you name it. There are good people, um, really talented film people who get to work on those movies. And you can see, I think in the better ones, you can see moments that really do shine through as being fun. Mm -hmm. or, or really well done so yeah yeah all right so thank you everyone for listening um you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at petchpanpuppets.com you can also follow us on twitter at rv and at Fuleman. we will see you next week <laughs>